most well-known scripture verse, at least here in the West. It says simply this, that though whoever believes in Jesus shall not perish, that is eternally, but will have everlasting life, reference to heaven and both hell. This morning we'll consider an example of our Lord's teaching on this subject as we explore the parable commonly known as the rich man and Lazarus. One of the most important rules for interpreting scripture is the rule of context. And the context for this parable is our Lord's ongoing war of words with the Pharisees. This was a sect, a faction among the ancient Jews. They were mostly middle class, working class guys such as St. Paul, who before he became Paul was a former Pharisee and a tent maker. Theologically, they were conservative. They were pit bulls, being very zealous to protect the orthodox faith and the traditions of Judaism. And I should also add that even though the rhetoric between them and our Lord got quite ugly, it was not our Lord's intention, I believe, to show them up or to embarrass them. He actually took them quite seriously and engaged them in meaningful dialogue, whereas with the others, such as the Sadducees, well, he hardly gave them the time of day. Well, the conflict begins in chapter 5 of Luke's gospel when he tells a paralyzed man that he has just healed, man, your sins are forgiven, Luke chapter 5, prompting them to accuse Jesus of blasphemy, which was one of the most serious offenses. It was a capital offense, punishable by death. Later in chapter 5, Jesus feasts with a tax collector. And again, you have to realize these were corrupt civil servants who were considered traitors to their own people, causing the Pharisees to complain to him about eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners, to which our Lord replies, well, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, that's who I came to see. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance, Luke chapter 5. In chapter 6 of Luke, the Pharisees complain again about his disciples not keeping the Sabbath. And Jesus simply replies, the Son of Man, which is how he often referred to himself, is the Lord of the Sabbath. On another Sabbath, he blatantly heals a man whose hand had withered. But the Pharisees, we read in Luke chapter 6, were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. As more and more people became followers of Jesus, Luke comments in chapter 7, but the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves. Sobering words. Later, near the end of his life, Jesus offers a trilogy, three very well-known parables about lost things. A single lost sheep whom the shepherd seeks and rescues. A lost coin whose owner diligently seeks it until she finds it. And of course, most famously in all, of all, a lost son who with open arms is welcomed back by his father, the one we call the prodigal son. The point of all three being, as Jesus says in Luke 15, I tell you there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Now, I noted earlier that most Pharisees, while not poor, were still middle-class tradesmen who nevertheless wanted to climb the ladder of wealth and fortune. Thus, Luke tells us in chapter 16, the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and he, Jesus, said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. 
for what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. And then he tells them a parable, which is our text this morning, about a rich man and a poor beggar by the name of Lazarus. He is the only character among our Lord's many parables who actually has a name. And I believe this serves to personalize Lazarus somewhat, even though throughout the parable he never utters a word. We hear not one word from Lazarus. The rich man, on the other hand, talks a lot, but never to Lazarus. And it is a parable, like, like all of Jesus' other parables, and not a historical event. But we mustn't ever think of it as just a parable, as if the truths set for here are somehow less true. Actually, the opposite is quite true, and that is this, that the parable format, if you will, gives it a quality of being universally true and applicable. And it is no less true and applicable today or, uh, uh, than it was then if perhaps even more so applicable, I would say, in our affluent age. This is a story of contrast. Rich man is not just well off. He is, as we would say, filthy, stinking rich. His house is protected by a gate. That's how big it is. He dresses every day in purple, the most expensive fabric money could buy in those days. Usually just the royals could afford that. And yet we're told that he wore it every single day. <laughs> what an ostentatious display of wealth. And every day was party time. Even his, even his friends, they would come together for feasts and so forth. And yet they did this every day. The scripture says they feasted sumptuously. I love that. It's the only time that word is used in scripture. I was wondering where else it might be. It's nowhere else in scripture. Only time, it's the only time it's used. And, and what does it mean? What does sumptuously mean? Well, I, my translation would be great food, great drink, and lots of it. There's just no limits whatsoever. Open bar, everything. But Lazarus has only the clothes on his back. He is immobile. He's been placed at the gate by others in the hope that the rich man or some of his rich friends would at least give him something to eat off of their table. He suffers from open sores, as we just read, which the dogs lick. And then he dies. But there's no funeral, no celebration of life. His remains would have been unceremoniously dumped in the nearest landfill with the other poor people. But not his eternal soul. Lazarus, ignored by the rich and famous, now experiences the divine favor, expressed as resting in the bosom of Abraham. Now, the reading that we just had from our ESV renders it the side of Abraham, as do several modern translations. But it is simply the Greek word for bosom. And more to the point, it signifies that Lazarus is not just simply with Abraham as at his side, but is now and forever in a place of peace and comfort and safety and honor. All that signified by the bosom of Abraham. Little wonder then that American slaves, starting probably in Virginia, use that metaphor for their own hopes and dreams. And that great spiritual, rock of my soul in the bosom of Abraham. You know it? Oh, rock of my soul. Well, the rich man also died, but he's in hell. Now, he recognizes Lazarus from afar. He knows him by name but he still sees him as a nobody. 
He doesn't speak to him. Instead, he orders Father Abraham to order Lazarus to fetch him a drop of water to ease his suffering. But not a word of repentance, not a word of remorse. And this is part of the hell of hell, by the way. Those there become increasingly more and more what they were in this life. Just more and more. Father Abraham reminds the rich man that during his life, he had good things. But those are all the good things he will ever have. For the lost, hell is, in simplest terms, all bad. Lazarus had great pain and sorrow in life. But that too is something that he will never, ever again have. For the saved, heaven is, shortest definition, all good. So now who's the beggar? The formerly rich man begs Abraham, we read in the scriptures, to send Lazarus back to earth to warn his poor brothers about their own impending doom. But Abraham responds with something curious. He says, they have Moses and the prophets. That's the way they would describe what we know as the Old Testament, the 39, first 39 books of the Bible. They have Moses and the prophets. Now this is clearly aimed at the Pharisees. You may recall that in John chapter 5, our Lord said this to the Pharisees, you search the scriptures. It's a good thing, isn't it? You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and they do indeed point us to that. And it is they, Jesus says, that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Thus the title of this sermon, Why People Go to Hell. And that's why. But the rich man doesn't give up. He argues with Father Abraham. The Bible? <laughs> that won't do. They're not going to believe that. I didn't believe it. But if someone comes back from the dead, oh, they'd repent and believe. How does he know that? You see what this implies? I, I may be reading a little into this, and you'll allow me that, please. I think what it is is a veiled complaint. I would have believed. You didn't send anybody to warn me from the dead. It's not my fault. And again, that's more and more how people will be in hell. Blaming others, never taking responsibility, going more and more inward, and so forth. But Father Abraham said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced, even if someone should rise from the dead. Well, someone did rise from the dead, did they not? Near the end of Jesus' earthly life, Jesus raised from the dead his good friend named Lazarus. Very good. Brother of Mary and Martha, who had been in his tomb dead for four long days. Upon his arrival, Jesus said to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. That sounds a lot like John 3.16, does it not? Shall never perish, shall never die, meaning ultimately and forever. But then he looks right at Martha and says, do you believe this? And she said to him, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. That from John 11. Shortly before his death, Jesus had one more parable for us and for all Pharisees, one that will bring those of us who are still on this side of the grave right to the heart of the matter. 
One more parable. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, we're told, standing off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Our Lord says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified. You recall it was the Pharisees who justified themselves before others. Jesus said, this man went to his house justified, right with God, rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Case in point, the rich man and Lazarus. What has Jesus been saying to them and to us this morning? That there are those who believe themselves to be righteous. They deserve God's favor, and thus someday will certainly enjoy the company of Father Abraham and the host of the redeemed, or so they think. But Jesus did not come for them. Do you know why? They have no need of a savior. The tax collector in true humility senses his unworthiness even to be in the presence of God in his holy temple. Thus he dares not even look up to heaven, but smites his breast saying, God be merciful to me a sinner. The Germans have a very interesting word. It's pronounced zeitgeist. Any of you familiar with the term zeitgeist? It's not a real common word we hear. It simply means the spirit of the age. What's going on? In our, in our culture. A big part of the zeitgeist of America and the West these days is the notion of tolerance. I saw a bumper sticker just the other day, big bumper sticker, didn't even have time to read it all, and it was very ornate and so forth, and it was preaching the virtues, of course, of tolerance. And so uh, I rather think that our, our ways, for example, of expressing our faith that Jesus is the only way to eternal life and so forth, I would be greeted by this person by with the a dirty look and saying, how intolerant. Well, that's just being intolerant. And this is the same with regard to this morning's sermon. Many will say, well, I know Buddhists and Hindus and Muslims, Jews, who do not embrace the Jesus of our scriptures. Uh, they may say that Jesus is all right with me, but it's not the Jesus described in our creeds. And yet they're very good and caring and kind and generous people, and they're not bad people. And thus many reject the notion of any idea of a final judgment spoken of in the passages we've looked at this morning. But if they're right, wherein is there any ultimate justice in this world? The history of the human race is one, is it not, of warfare, exploitation, slavery, and in our day, sex trafficking, even with children and minors, the horrors of drugs that destroy lives, just to name a few. And if there's no judgment, if there's no day of reckoning, how is there to be any justice? Beloved, you and I are hardwired for justice. I believe it's in our DNA, and personally I be, I've come to believe that it is the greatest single proof, not only for the existence of God, but of our being created in his image. You don't have to teach little ones about justice. They catch on to the idea of fairness very early on. And if we, with all of our own imperfections and faults, 
cry out for justice? How could we think that a perfectly holy and just and caring God would not judge injustice as well? And not just for the Caligulas and the Hitlers and the Stalins of the world, bad as they were, but for all of us who, like the rich man in our parable, have often simply ignored the plight of those around us. How do you think a loving and just God views all this? Many people today, I've, I've heard it so many times, say, oh, I just can't believe in God or the God of Scripture. How could a loving God allow all the pain and suffering and evil in the world? Beloved, I believe God would ask every one of us in this room and every human being on the planet the very same question. How can you allow it? Why have you treated one another so badly and violently and, yes, even the unborn? And you tolerate those who do in the name of tolerance. Well, unlike us, God has done something. In the words of John 3, 17, he sent his son into the world, not to condemn the world, though we deserve it, but to save us in this life from the destructive results of sin and evil and in the next life to restore in us the divine image that has been broken by our sinfulness too. In the words of the little Christmas carol, fit us for heaven to live with him there so that all of us poor broken Lazaruses can experience the acceptance and the safety and the comfort and the peace that can only be found in the bosom of Abraham. And he does all of this at his own cost, not ours. Gratis grace freely. Now you can believe that or you can be a 21st century Pharisee and foolishly trust in your own righteousness that it will somehow withstand the blinding scrutiny of an all-knowing God on the last day of judgment who judges the very thoughts of our hearts. So my question to you is, can you say with Martha, yes Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God. And can you do it without crossing your fingers? Or are you going to be like the Pharisees who rejected the purpose of God for their lives? That's why people go to hell. In the passage we read earlier, our Lord told the Pharisees that Moses and the prophets and the Old Testament scriptures bear witness about me, but you refuse to come to me that you may have life. One of those prophets was the prophet Isaiah as he told his ancient people. He tells you and me this today, all of us who are broke and are broken Lazaruses. Hear what he says. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy, and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligent to me, diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live. Beloved, that is feasting sumptuously. In the name of the Father. Son and the Holy Spirit.